0: Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Dan Kovalik, the author of Critically Acclaimed, The Plot to Escape Goat Russia and No More War. And he has been a labor and human rights lawyer since graduating from Columbia Law School in 1993. Kovalik has represented plaintiffs in ATS cases arising out of egregious human rights abuses in Colombia. He received the David W. Mills Mentoring Fellowship from Stanford Law School, and he has appeared on Fox News, The Ingram Angle, has written extensively for HuffPost and Counterpunch, and he has lectured throughout the world. I welcome Dan Kovalik to Savage Minds. It's no small irony that recently, maybe two months ago, I posted some articles. My Facebook page is essentially my reading list. Much of what I post, I haven't read. So I just throw it on my page. It's much easier than having 50 thumbnails open on my browser. So someone wrote me and she said, well, why are you posting right-wing publications? And I said, well, my wall, I occasionally post this every few months. My wall is my reading list. And secondly, I do read across the spectrum politically because I think it behooves us to in this day and age when... The media is giving red carpet treatments to certain kinds of ideologies, shunning completely certain topics. How will we know about what's happening in the world then if we read the Bible according to CNN or the Bible according to Fox News or what have you? And it was sort of disappointing to me because she was someone who's done a PhD. And I thought, wait a second, you're trained to read texts across a variety of spectrums politically in your field. Why aren't people doing this more, I thought. So, you know, I read your book, and I was very impressed, even let's begin with the preface, where you kick off on the events at the Capitol, and you point to the similar problems of bias that happens when the media is unable to assess, let's say, the riots and protests of last summer, and suddenly... There's a historical event on January 6th where suddenly that same media recognizes that it is a problem to deface public buildings. And you end your preface quite beautifully you say, this is a time that calls for great soul-searching. And what most understand is that true soul-searching involves looking into one's own soul to find ways to advance and evolve morally and spiritually. It is not about peering into other souls in an attempt to find them somehow lacking. This spoke to me so much because much of what's at the heart of cancel culture and the left's drive to spread the word according to the gospel of is that we're seeing a very puritanical religious movement arise from the place we least thought it would.
1: Yeah, well, that's absolutely right. This is a a, a new religion. And I think, you know, uh, in a society, particularly in the US, which is, you know, where I am, um, where religion, uh, more traditional forms of religion are actually Uh, starting to vanish. People are leaving churches in in huge numbers, um, but apparently still want to cling to some kind of religion. And this seems to be uh, the new one. And it is a, a religion like others with its own orthodoxy, with its own symbols. And it's one that does not allow for questioning. And that's really, look, the main thing, if I get anything across from the book and from speaking is that people need to question things. They need to question themselves and they need to be allowed to do that without being uh, judged and harassed and, and and deplatformed. None of us have all the answers and I don't claim to. I mean, I think a lot of what I write in the book, uh, A number of times I say, look, you know, um, I hope I'm right on some things, but it's not even about being right. It's about defending the right to be able to question and, and to have discussions and debates about very important issues of the day, which apparently we are told we really can't have a debate about. We're just told what the line is and we're supposed to follow it.
0: And we're seeing this most shockingly within academia. This is happening within major US and British institutions that people are being told not to question. And I'm thinking of Mark Crispin Miller, whose case about questioning and asking his students in a course in propaganda. It's a course where they're supposed to be questioning the enforcement of not questioning paradoxically. And he's had to take action against his colleagues at NYU because they've defamed him, made all kinds of allegations about his basically telling his students to question what is being said about COVID mitigation, to question if masks are the best form of mitigation and where's the science behind it. And it's shocking that universities are towing the line on what is really a form of neo-McCarthyism at this point.
1: Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. And I know Mark and he obviously is a very smart and thoughtful guy. And I think for for the listeners, it's important to point out what's happened with him. So apparently um, earlier uh, in the fall of last year, he was teaching a class, as you say, on on propaganda, and he he raised questions about the mask uh, requirements during the pandemic whether the masks were truly necessary and and whether instead they were, in fact, a form of social engineering and social control. Uh, Meanwhile, as I understand it, he did tell his students to continue wearing masks. He wasn't saying don't wear masks. All he was saying is. Let's question what's going on here. And, you know, as you say, students and, and other fellow faculty, uh, some of them, you know, uh, uh, rate, you know, called for him to be fired because of this. And this is incredible. So first of all, you know, uh, as you say, this is the academy. This is a, a an institution of higher learning. I think it's what NYU. I think
0: he's yes, at NYU. Um, yes.
1: pretty prestigious school in a very liberal uh, city in Greenwich Village. You know, place that used to be at least. Uh, place of great artistic development and free thinking. And here people are calling for this guy to be fired because he has questions. And, and you know, I mentioned this whole thing about uh, the pandemic orthodoxy, if we can call it that, uh, in the book and how. Um, you know, first of all, you know, again, we're told not to question. Um, but there's a lot of questions. I mean, one I have, I mean, I'm a lawyer. Okay. I, I went to Columbia law school. I was a lawyer, active lawyer for 26 years. One thing I question is, you know, what, where does the state have all this power to tell people their businesses have to close and, um, you know, uh, people can't make a livelihood. Many people lost their businesses due to these locked out orders. Where is the constitutional uh, um, mandate that that gives the federal government and the states the power to do this? It's not even clear to me. And in Wisconsin, by the way, I think it was Wisconsin, um, the Supreme Court invalidated some of the lockdown measures because it found, again, the state's power lacking in this regard. Again, I believe there's a pandemic. I wear a mask. I socially distance. Uh, I got my first vaccine. Um, So I'm not questioning that we have an important public health issue, Uh, but I think it is worth questioning what is done to society in order to combat this. And I think that's what Mark is doing in saying, look, and in a lot of of course, what's being ordered or recommended, uh, there's a lot of self-contradiction to uh, to a lot of, right? I mean, yes, you can go to a restaurant, you have to wear your mask until you get to your table. And then somehow magically, when you're at your table, you don't have to wear the mask because, <laughs> you know, I guess the coronavirus can't get you when you're sitting at your table, but it can when you're en route. None of that makes sense. No one thinks this makes sense. Um, you know, and again, uh, big businesses, Walmart, your big grocery chains, Whole Foods, uh, they've been allowed to continue to operate. They're essential businesses. The mom and pop bar uh, barber shop or the mom and pop restaurant—they uh, were told to close, particularly back in April uh, in May of last year. And again, many people lost their businesses. Who's who's essential and who's not? Who determines that? You know, these are important questions that everyone has to ask because, look, it doesn't appear that that this pandemic's going to pass real soon. And once it does pass, if it does, because you know, obviously a lot of us have questions whether it's going to. There may be another pandemic right behind it. So why can't we ask what measures should be taken and and that are fair to deal with this type of public health
0: issue? I've been asking this myself. Again, I've had people on my Facebook wall say, but three months ago, you asked that people lock down. And I I remind people that information requires us to change our political positions as well, because we were sold this as the next bubonic plague. And it's not that. In fact, what some people in some nations are recognizing is that this is just a really bad flu. And it's a flu that's 95% of the fatalities in countries in the EU are people over the age of 60. And when you go over 70, it's something in the order of 85%. But okay, that doesn't mean that you will not absolutely not die from it and that there's not long COVID. But these raise political issues in and of themselves, because as you noted, and you noted also in your first chapter, Cancel This Book, that there's a dissonance between what the left is saying and claims it does and what the left is doing. You talk about NAFTA and the first NAFTA with Clinton and Hillary Clinton also lobbying for this as first lady. And then you go to other issues that actually put into question our traditional notions of what left and right mean. Because yourself as a labor. Lawyer and a human rights lawyer, uh, you work on issues that traditionally have been couched within the left. People who want to affect human rights for all, often, not always, historically have been associated with the left. I did work on 9-11, post 9-11, disappearance of Muslim men in Brooklyn. All the people I worked with, all the organizations to include the ACLU were on the left. Skip to today, and we see the ACLU is tweeting. 90% of its tweets some days are all about boys playing on girls' sports team. It's not the same ACLU I worked with in the early 2000s. So I'm left thinking, if lockdown is being pushed by this left, I'm putting that in quotes, the liberal progressive class, as they consider themselves such, they don't seem to be worrying a bit about what's happening to the working class, the people who even might be their neighbors in their same middle-class neighborhood who no longer are middle class. I've seen that where I live. People have had to go and get government subsidies and they were doing so well their entire life that they had zero clue how to do it, where to go for it. They didn't even know the deadlines. And the government officers are saying to people, oh, you don't know how to do this because you're middle class, and now you're poor. So what's happening is something that is is striking to me, because Americans have always been at the giving end of a lot of horror, internationally speaking, and economic wealth. Now, there, as in the EU, people are suffering, it's palpable, there are food shortages among people who were last year or two years ago, middle class. And we're not seeing that the talk meets the walk or vice versa. The same thing with NAFTA. Like the way NAFTA was proposed was this like progressive legislation that was going to help people in Canada and Mexico and the U.S., So this all raises questions about what the liberal class is anymore, because, as you know, Trump had great appeal amongst the working class. But the myth we get when we watch CNN or read CNN online is that the elite class are the Republicans. The poor people are the ones voting for Clinton or voting for Obama.
1: Yeah, well, you you raise a lot of issues there and there's a lot uh, to unpack, but I think what has happened, and and I do I cite Thomas Frank in the book because he, you know, he's been probably the most uh, outspoken on this, or effectively outspoken on this, is that there's been a realignment. The Democratic Party, beginning uh, really with Roosevelt in the New Deal, um, took on the Mantle of the party of the working class and, 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 and for a number of decades, really did do things for the working class. You know, passed the National Labor Relations Act, which legalized unions and the right to organize and the right to strike. Um, passed uh, various types of social security and welfare um, legislation to, to provide a social safety net for people you know, Lyndon Johnson, a Democrat, had his great society where he was going to try to lift people out of poverty. That was greatly interrupted by his, you know, foreign adventure in in Vietnam. But at least he tried to do that. Um, You know, but beginning really with Carter, and especially accelerating under Bill Clinton, the Democratic Party began to uh, it continued to at least pay lip service to the working class, but it began um, to engage in policies that were undermining the working class. Again, through things like NAFTA, through things like PNTR, which is the trade agreement with uh, China, which essentially allowed for you know companies in the US to move overseas and take the jobs with them. Uh, Clinton also did, you know, famously in his own words, ended welfare as we know it. He he made it much harder for people to get on public assistance. Uh, but meanwhile, at least Clinton at least continued to claim he was a you know an advocate for the working class. Now the Democrats don't even claim that. They they don't even make a pretense of it. You know, I think I cite many times this quote from Hillary Clinton, who you know portrayed the working class and in middle America as the deplorables. Uh, And and I think that is the view of the Democratic Party and much of the base of the Democratic Party. It is not a party that wants to represent working people. It's one that wants to represent uh, intellectuals and um, more privileged people. Um, And and that, again, is seen in this lockdown, as you say. I saw one of the best quotes I saw, and I don't know who came up with it, but it was brilliant. I saw a meme. It said, lockdown, definition, middle class people hiding while working class people bring things to them. And that is exactly what this is. People who are, are so wedded to the lockdown are people who are privileged people who have computers and Wi-Fi and homes, by the way,
0: and can earn their living from the computers.
1: Exactly. And sit around in bed. And hey, it's a pretty great life, honestly, <laughs> um, if you can. You know, not a bad job if you can get it right. Uh, but you can't always get it, even if you try. Exactly. Meanwhile, mean, right? <laughs> meanwhile, they get food brought to them from Grubhub and 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 Uber Eats, and um, you know, uh, and there's working people who come to their door and bring them these things. And by the way, meanwhile, I've and I've read this on a number of occasions. The people, the working people who do those deliveries are getting less and less tips from those people hiding in their homes. Uh, and what those workers say is because with the social distancing, they, the drivers will leave the food at the door and then knock on the door and leave. So the point is the people inside never have to look in the eyes of the people we're delivering to them. And because of that, a lot of people decide, okay, well, I'm just not going to tip because I don't feel socially compelled to do so. The point is the working class has been screwed by this lockdown. And we know this, Absolutely. right?
0: Absolutely, Millions of
1: jobs have been lost. Millions of people have been fallen into poverty. Meanwhile, we also know that the richest of the rich have made billions of dollars during this, because, again, the way the lockdown was engineered was to allow the big businesses to continue operating basically without pause uh, while the little businesses were forced to close. This is a fact. And so, you know, you read these harrowing stories. I read one. This old guy had a music store outside Detroit. And he lost his business after many years, you know. And he said, "Why can't I sell instruments to people who come in? We could all be masked up. Um, we could socially distance, you know. Again, people can go to Walmart. They never could. They they never were prevented from going to Walmart during the lockout uh, lockdown. Um, but meanwhile, this guy and many people like him." lost their businesses because somehow they weren't considered essential businesses. And and then when people protested about it, and again, maybe some of the people protesting against the lockdowns were not people you would agree with on other issues, but those people were vilified for saying, hey, we want to be able to work and run our businesses. It's like they have a point, at least admit they have a
0: point. And the way that even the term lockdown, it's a carcero term. <laughs> we're, we're being put in cell block 14 and they have no shame in stating it. Meanwhile, I think back to the Schwarzenegger video with him and his goats. Remember that? Was it yes, goats? yes. And yeah, people with mansions, people with outside terrain, if it's a little bit or a lot, it's a lot more than most people have living in apartment blocks, council estates, tiny studio apartments. I mean, I've lived in New York. I can't think of any of the places I've lived that I would want to be locked down in. It was cr- no, that's cruel. Right. That's right. I'm still in lockdown. People are suffering and, and severely so. Bernie Sanders said this, and you said it in your book as well, that the Democratic Party has become a party of elites. Thomas Frank says this as well. And it's, Fascinating that so many of the Democrats, even those who are friends in real life, they maintain that this is untrue. I find this shocking because the evidence is everywhere. The events of 6th January, aside from the break in of the Capitol building itself, it was shocking to me to see that media were not asking questions about the tens of thousands of peaceful protesters there. What are you doing here? That wasn't asked. It was all eyes focused, like an O.J. Simpson chased down the highway on that building by what were no more than 100 people breaking in. Yes, they shouldn't have done it. We can all agree. Not good. But thousands and thousands, there were tens of thousands of people outside that never got the time of day by media.
1: Well, and even apparently, I mean, I think it was the New York Times that that wrote the story that even the people who were in the Capitol, it turned out that a, a good... Portion of them were people who had lost businesses and were bankrupt and were um, people who had suffered economic dislocation, even if they had once been middle class or upper middle class. um, But the interesting takeaway from that, that I saw was to kind of look down on those people, like, see, it's a bunch of losers who did this, right? As opposed to say, oh, Maybe they have real grievances, but we're not going to ask what the grievances are, you know, because yeah. they're bad people.
0: Well, they so- focus on the, the guns that were present. It's the U.S. People have guns. I mean, this is what I tell people. And I'm like you. I think we should be asking questions about why people were protesting. And yes, uh, obviously the economic devastation of lockdown fits into a lot of the protests, including much of the Black Lives Matter protest last year. Yet, that was racialized, statue toppling, good, barely a peep about poverty from the so-called leftist press. I'm not seeing it anywhere, Dan.
1: No, you're right. And I, I quote a, a great quote that, that uh, I found was from a friend of mine, Ajamu Baraka, African-American um, activist who ran as vice president uh, with Jill Stein um, on the Green Party ticket uh, he now lives in colombia anyway he he talked about the fact that you know in, in the protest of Lyle last summer by and large um, those protests did not claim the interest of the poor um, and as you say did not raise the issues of the poor did not raise the issues of Medicare for all during a pandemic right again, while liberals seem obsessed about the need for lockdown, there wasn't this concomitant concern about health care for all, right? Things that were in the spring with Bernie Sanders were being discussed. And I remember quite vividly as the, as the, as the pandemic began to take hold in the U S in March, early April of last year, a lot of people were saying, hey, it looks like Medicare for all is going to be inevitable. Right. This pandemic is going to make Medicare for all happen. And by May and June, you never heard the words Medicare for all anymore, nor the words Bernie Sanders. All that was swept aside. And all the economic issues that were pressing down upon millions of Americans again, who were going homeless and, and, and sinking into poverty, no one seemed to care. Um, at least not those who were uh, the most vocal. And um, meanwhile, you had—I uh, also mentioned in, in the book—you had some of the uh, the biggest number of strikes America's ever seen. Uh, There were over a a thousand strikes last year, and yet you barely heard a peep about that.
0: Can you talk about that? Because this is something that has frustrated me greatly this past year. I thought that this would have finally changed this facade and perhaps the interior of many kinds of activism that highlights the superficial, like identity politics. I thought this will be the end of identity politics. Myriad fronts of anti-science activism that people are engaging in flat-earthery when it comes to identity, gender identity, most notably. I thought this will crash that train. And then, like you, I also thought there would be some kind of move towards a French or Canadian-style medical coverage. How on earth... Are Americans being hoodwinked by their worst interests? And I think a lot of this comes down to ideology, that we need to maybe stop believing that the party line is going to get us anywhere and start looking at issues, one issue after the next. Because in this day and age of a pandemic, and as you said, there could be another one, according to the experts, there are others coming. Why is Medicare for all not already a reality?
1: Right. And again, I think, you know, we talk about this issue of privilege, which everyone wants to talk about, you know, everyone cares about privilege, but they care about, you know, uh, uh, privilege based on race or gender um, or gender identity. But they don't, again, talk about privilege based on economic control. and I think largely because those who talk about, uh, who control the discourse on the issues of the day uh, are pretty privileged. And so, one, they don't want to recognize their economic privilege, right? Uh, that is uh, something people don't want to own up to. Uh, and also, they don't, because they're economically privileged, they don't you know, I'm sorry, empathize a lot with people um, who aren't um, in part, because, again, I think it it, it makes them confront themselves and where they're placed in society. Um, so what has happened is there is this obsession now uh, about race and gender issues, which are important. I don't want to belittle those things. Those are important. There are real racial divisions in this society. There re- are real divisions uh, uh, between men and women. Um, At the same time, there are issues of class we need to talk about. And those are now verboten. You cannot talk about those issues. And I give the uh, uh, example of this brilliant scholar and activist, uh, Adolf Reed, African-American. Oh, I
0: love Reed's work. He's great.
1: He's incredible. And he was deplatformed numerous times. But, you know, most notably um, in 2019 from a DSA conference, uh, he was deplatformed because of things that he wrote, which tried to, again, uh, not uh, disregard issues of race, but to say, hey, we also have to talk about class and we need to talk about class struggle. Not surprising, given that he's a lifetime Marxist, that he would talk about those things. Um, But DSA, Democratic Socialists of America, the biggest leftist group in America, um, they deplatformed them. They didn't want to hear that. They're not interested in class. It's incredible. You have a socialist organization or self-proclaimed socialist organization who doesn't want to hear about class. And everyone who talks about class is a class reductionist by definition, right? All we want to do is raise the issue alongside these other issues.
0: He was no platform last year as well for saying that the links between coronavirus and race are first not proven scientifically, and these are first and foremost sociological issues. I was shocked. Right, and socioeconomic issues. Yes, exactly. And so he was deplatformed from talks in New York and Philly. His work is so important, and it hits The Achilles' Hill of identity politics, he calls it out. He says that this is a problem of a managerial elite, and they don't want to hear it. But who's gotten rich from BLM fundraising? Who started BLM? Yes, black women, not poor about black women, however. And what has been done with the hundreds of millions raised by that organization, Google, all the big, big tech firms, big firms everywhere gave money. We're not seeing much in the improvement of the lives of poor Black people. This is the real paradigm that's going to be ignored as long as they can get away with ignoring it. It's just another NGO.
1: Well, yeah. uh, Yeah. And, And of course, there's been, you know, not, you know, local BLM chapters have been raising this issue. Where's our money? Right? We're a local BLM chapter. We have cost. We have... It's not being shared. No one knows where that money's going. But I want to go back to the Adolf (laughs) Reed (laughs) controversy because it's an important one. You know, one of the things that people like Reed talk about is that this fixation on, like, for example, linking COVID with race becomes racist because if you if you if you take out the socioeconomic analysis from it what are you left with that somehow what people of color are biologically more susceptible to COVID? And, 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 and that seems to be the implication. Um, again, I don't think that's true. Um, but that is what's suggested by a lot of this discourse. And of course that becomes racist because then you're talking about, um, biological differences that don't exist um, across racial lines. Um, but again, we're just not supposed to ask questions. And people like Reed who say you know that this is going down a very strange road. Uh, you know there's people who talk about, for example, um, you know because they don't want to sound racist, they'll say, well, you know African Americans you know in their DNA suffer. From the vestiges of slavery so what are you saying that D- on a dna level they're damaged somehow i mean that's racist i'm sorry
0: aside from completely unfounded right we have no evidence of this yeah
1: completely unfounded but, but you know people are making this stuff up as we go along and again there's no room for debate about it um and as you noted you know at the outset of our discussion you know. And so where do you go to find information and the ability to, to, to dialogue about these issues on, in a different way than is being discussed in, in most of the mainstream media. Um, you, you look at very um, well, what's the word um, pretty uh, isolated or, um, you know, secondary uh, publications, you know, um, like Quillette, for example, which I guess some people say is right wing. I, I don't look at it that way, but um, but there's very few ven- venues left. To be able to discuss these things, and, and and it's very sad. And again, people are afraid to discuss them even on their own social media pages because they will be mobbed for it. I'll give an, an example. I mean, um. I posted something on Facebook, uh, I don't know, a month ago or so. It was just a spontaneous reaction to a commercial I saw. It was a commercial for believe an HIV medication. And at some point during the litany of disclaimers that all these drug companies have to give uh, during those commercials, um, they said uh, this medication may not be Uh, appropriate for people designated as female at birth. And I was, you know, when I raised this question, you know, I thought we had a name for those people and they were girls, you know, and then when they got older, they were women. Now they're people designated female at birth. As if somehow, and again, I understand there is gender fluidity. I respect that. But I don't think that doctors and nurses and midwives are willy-nilly, arbitrarily designating people female and male at birth. Um, It's not happening. That's not a real thing. Um, And yet, we are told we have to believe that. And anyways, because I raised a question about it, I think in a very gentle way, I was instantly attacked by people. Who almost seemed to be laying in wait for these things. Uh, people I never had heard from before uh, attacked me uh, uh, about it. Um, again, because you know, there's just certain issues we just we just can't talk about. And I mean, one of the reasons I wrote the book, you know, and even my family doesn't understand it. You know, as, as we're talking, I'm 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 kind of. Uh, stowed away in the bedroom giving this interview because uh, um, no one in my household likes my book or wants me talking about it. So I'm I'm (laughs) quietly sitting. Have
0: you been no platform by your own family? (laughs) Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I have. I have. Absolutely. You know, but that's how, I guess, you know, the logical extreme that these things are, are going on, that you literally just can't uh, freely do. Oh, so what I've said, you know, when when, when I'm asked by folks again, including my own family members, like, why did you write that book? And aren't you afraid you're going to be canceled? And, and my response is, and again, no one seems to understand my response, but I'm like, well, I wrote it because I believe it and I needed to say it and maybe no one will read the book. Um, I I want people to read it and buy it, of course. But as a writer and I guess I'm a writer now, this is my sixth book, I've written many articles. I think you have to write about what you think and what you feel and part of it was very just therapeutic to say, okay, these are things that I've been thinking about for years that I've been afraid myself to say online or to say at a dinner party or to say at my own dinner table. Um I'm going to say them now and I feel better just because I got it off my chest. Right.
0: You mentioned your son at one point in, I believe it was your preface or introduction. Joe, I believe his name is, you said. Yes, yes. And he told you not to write the book, that you'll have problems. Why is your family not at ease with the book now that it's done? Do they simply not agree?
1: Well, one, they don't uh, agree, and two, uh, they're afraid it will come back on them and that they'll be canceled by association because they fully understand that that is how this cancel culture works, right? um, that you are guilty by association. You're guilty, you know, because you're certain friends with certain people on Facebook or whatnot. Um, yeah, so that, that, that's a real fear, but yeah, also because I do question some of the orthodoxy, um, that, that, that they themselves, you know, cling to, um, again, wh- why that matters, as I mentioned, my own parents who, who have gotten closer to as I've gotten older and they've gotten older, you know, we don't, we've never agreed on, on anything really. Um, I left the Catholic church, which was a big blow to them. They're very, you know, very conservative Roman Catholics. Um, they're big Trump supporters. I'm not, let me just say I'm not a (laughs) Trump supporter. Um, and yet we find a certain common ground, right? Because I don't, I, 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 my goal is not to base my personal relationships uh, on having 100% political agreement with with someone. I don't expect that. Uh, and I don't see how it's even possible, again, unless you're just not being honest. I mean, how how can anyone be 100% in agreement
0: on anything? But that's where we're at. To expect that your interlocutor must agree with you on all counts—I mean, this is insanity, if not immature.
1: Well, I think it comes from a deep-seated uh, lack of courage in one's convictions, right? Because people don't want to be challenged. Because a lot of the things we're talking about, I think people realize on a gut level, right, or in the back of their minds. I don't think a lot of people—I, I, my own personal belief is that most people don't believe in this stuff. They, they don't really believe, um, again, that, that, that people are, are arbitrarily designating people as female at birth. Um, they don't believe that every, every injustice in America can be explained by race. Um, they don't believe that a guy uh, who's homeless on the street Um, because he's white, he has white privilege Um, I don't think people really believe that but they feel they have to they can't question it because
0: they will be cancelled You're listening to Savage Minds and we hope you're enjoying the show Please consider subscribing We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you Now, back to our show. It's a similar contradiction that Thomas Frank takes up in the sense of when we're looking at the BLM protests last year, for instance, the the way the media on the center, center left propping up these protests, there was no scrutiny of centimeters between people without or with masks, none of that. Skip to January 6th, it was opposite day. Skip to any mask protest or any COVID protest about loss of job, loss of freedoms. Again, the media was out noting that people weren't social distancing. So we see there's two measuring sticks being used by the media, depending on what side of the aisle that media sits. I have to put quotes around left because most of the media that considers itself left is not at all left, but whatever. Then skip to the fact that in your book, you note that there was over 1,100 strikes last year. Wait, wait, let's get this straight. So you've got Google. I don't know if you're aware of this. I wrote about this back in 2019, but in 2018, Google had a walkout. And the next year, United Steelworkers, with the assistance of the Pittsburgh Association of Technical Professionals, helped Google employees to ask the National Labor Board for the right to vote for union representation. Google did all kinds of shenanigans to prevent this, okay? So people who think, Black Lives Matter is a very righteous organization. Listen closely here because Google donated millions to Black Lives Matter but couldn't be arsed to guarantee its own workers the ability to form a union. Skip to what's gone on recently with Amazon, which has also been pulling similar shenanigans. So we have a 1,100 roughly strikes last year that most of our listeners will not have heard of. And At the same time, the same companies throwing millions at Black Lives Matter couldn't divert those millions to their own workers. And let's not even talk about the working conditions of many of Amazon's employees or the fact that Bezos made a gazillion, made up number I know, but I'm identifying it as a lot. And no one is speaking out about someone who is an oligarch of a certain color he's allowed to keep the money in run. Now he's stepped down. No discussion, even in Europe, about renters. You've got countries like Italy where 80% of the population owns a home. And of that 80% of the population, a huge chunk owned two, three, four homes. Okay. COVID mitigation was done badly because it could have actually capitalized on home owning in multiple numbers, but whatever. And no one in Italy, no one in France, no one in Canada or the U.S. has really... Pol- politics, you know, people in public office have spoken about renters. Instead of saying, cancel rent, they're saying, well, you can pay us back later. Dan, you know how much rents are in New York City or in D.C. or in Boston?
1: Oh, in or San Francisco, yeah.
0: Well, that's the worst. That's the highest in the country. How are people supposed to pay back 15 months of rent who will even, as they're listening still be unemployed, or still making, I lost 90% of my income last year, what, 89%. So how are people supposed to get by?
1: Yeah, well, they, they can't, and they won't. And they will be forgotten, sadly, uh, by many of the people who, who claim to be uh, progressives. Well, so yeah, let's go over some of the things you mentioned, because I think they're important. First of all, I guess let's start with the Google because I live in Pittsburgh and worked for the United Steelworkers for 26 years. So I'm very intimately, I have intimate knowledge about the Google uh, campaign. In fact, uh, by sheer coincidence this morning on my local NPR uh, uh, channel, they talked about the fact that after a year and a half, a year and a half later after the workers voted to unionize at that Google contractor in Pittsburgh, Uh, a year and a half later, they still don't have a contract because that contractor has um, agreed only to bargain two times a month. And they've been cited by the National Labor Relations Board as bargaining in bad faith, but they still haven't changed their ways. Um, And again, as you know, but still Google claims to be this woke company, Amazon, which is 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 aggressively anti-union, you know, where its employees again, who serve the privileged, right, who are sitting around locked down. Right. They had the only way they can survive is through Amazon because that's where they get their crap. The people who do those jobs in the warehouses literally wear diapers because they can't go to the bathroom, you know. Um, But again, Amazon uh, is this woke company. I mean, probably one of the more disgusting displays of all this was was Uber in California, which um, uh, was able to get uh, a referendum passed uh, to guarantee that it, its employees are not considered employees under the law for the purposes of wages, benefits, and and the ability to unionize. The way they got that passed was uh, m- draping themselves in the mantle of the BLM protest and supporting BLM and and uh, you know the same liberals who supported those protests. Uh, voted, um, you know, to keep um, these Uber workers in poverty, um, and we see this uh, time and again, and, and again. So, you know, the you mentioned a couple of media outlets. Again, the one that I'm most familiar with that I listen to two times a day, just out of habit, and it's a bad habit, just like heroin use is 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 bad. Uh, is NPR. And NPR is, a, I mean, I, it hurts my my stomach to listen to really um, because they had now become, you know, again, the most woke institution ever. But meanwhile, they don't cover these strikes um, that happened last year. No one covered the uh, strike in India that involved 250 million people, a quarter of a billion people. Um, again, less people get, um, the wrong idea, you know, and you met I mean, you mentioned the upside down day. And again, I think it has to be pointed out, you know, meanwhile, NPR, and I mentioned this in my book last, I think August, September had this laudatory interview with this person who wrote, um, a book in defense of looting. In fact, I think it was called in defense of looting. And 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 who again stated on NPR how great it was for people to loot, that it was a liberate, you know, a, a form of, of of liberation to do this and sticking it to the man, right? Meanwhile, again on January sixth, you know, you saw the guy taking uh, Pelosi's podium out, smiling at the camera. He was looting, and yet he was, you know, in this case, people are appalled, right? Um, Meanwhile, uh, the other thing and I commented out loud when I was listening to the radio again to NPR, um, a couple policemen lost their lives during during those January six uh, capital um, um, invasion, for lack of a better word. And NPR was very, uh, you know, um, rightfully um, uh, reverential about about those deaths, but I, you know, immediately said to myself, "Oh, do we like cops now?" You know, um, because you know that was a totally different message than we had um, all last summer. Um, you know, so there is this Alice in Wonderland quality to all this, where, as you say, uh, we don't judge events by any objective standards, we judge them by who's doing them and who they're doing them to um, to decide whether we think their conduct is right or not. And the upshot of all this, just to to cut to the chase, is that, you know, where, where is in what, 2012, you had this Occupy movement that talked about the 1% and the 99%, right? The 1% of the economic elites who own 50 percent of the of the country's wealth. And then there's the ninety nine percent that's left to fight over the rest. This was a very good way to couch things. Right. Because what it said was we the ninety nine percent have more in common with each other, despite various differences in race and ethnicity and culture and, and gender we have a lot in common because we're the 99% and we're getting screwed by the 1% we need to unite. And if we unite the 99%, the 1% cannot continue to do what they do. Well, that idea now is gone, right? Because uh, of the 99%, a solid, at least let's just say 40% are deemed now deplorable because they may have voted for Trump or whatever. And so what all this discourse does is divide people who should be working together for a common good.
0: Because when you get past gender identity is one of the thorny issues because it affects children. It's become a contagion. It has affected parental rights in places like Canada. If you followed the Hoogland trial, which is finishing today, and it's affected women. 51% of us get to be called cervix havers and chest feeders and menstruators. And it's offensive. On the one hand, I was just writing on my wall this morning about Apu, the actor who's apologizing for having voice that cares.
1: And Kazarian.
0: And I'm thinking, this is ridiculous. I looked up the actor who replaced him. Not Indian. So, let me get this straight. An actor who did... His job in voicing a character is not supposed to voice it. Now, I'm saying this not having ever watched that show. Never. But he's voiced this character. There was a film made critiquing that voiceover. And then he comes out in agreement with the detractor saying, yes, I shouldn't have done it. A year later, he's re-apologizing. And I looked up the actor who's replaced him. And the actor is a black American actor great. But isn't that sort of the same difference? I mean, not to be technical here, because as I wrote in my Facebook wall, I grew up with that thick Indian accent. I can't do it. I do a very good German and French accent in English, like for an English speaker with that accent. I cannot do my father's accent. I cannot. I'm terrible at it. So... If Hank Azara can do that accent better than me, why shouldn't he get the job? But instead, it's become this bizarre mix and match of, we'll toss out that brown character's white acting voice with a black acting voice. Like, I don't get it. It's very racist, in a sense, is what I'm getting at here. And it it troubles me that we're in an era of everyone's going along with this and oh yes it's very bad that Azaria played that voice and no one's really thinking it through go back to Kevin Hart and his you know homophobic tweets or whatever he did a decade ago um I don't care I'm also gay I don't care like are we not allowed to change forgive learn things like that so you're you're right on target, talking about the 99%, because the people who own the 1%, they love these wars. They love Azaria's apology. He's he's not poor, but he's not the owner of Amazon. And he will have to struggle to get roles, perhaps, because of his faux pas of having taken a job. (laughs) It's weird. Where now we're supposed to both detract from these evil actors in Hollywood, but then they too are sort of pawns in the larger game by the uber-rich. And we're supposed to now believe that we have more in common banging on about Black Lives Matter. And if you don't say that and you don't kneel, if you don't take a knee then you're the problem. Meanwhile, we have white on black economic data to show that the real thing dividing us all, the real fact of police brutality is that police brutality tends to happen towards a certain socioeconomic sector, regardless of skin color. Yeah, healthcare tends to be worse for a certain socioeconomic sector. And we're not talking about that. This is where Reed is so important because that's what the left should be doing, no?
1: Yeah, of course. Of course. And again, you know, um, it, the irony is that a lot of this, um, again, so-called woke ideology, ironically, is a continuation of the McCarthy period, right? Right. Of McCarthyism, which went after Reds or people who were claimed to be Reds or again were friends with Reds, you know, Marxists, communists, um, they were attacked because they were considered unpatriotic and treasonous. Now, communists, Marxists like Adolf Reed, are attacked um, because apparently they don't really get. Um, you know, the latest in woke ideology. Right. But but the result is the same, that if you're calling for class struggle, you must be silenced. Right. It's a very interesting um, phenomenon. And I want to just address the other thing you mentioned, and that's that um, this idea that people cannot grow, cannot change, cannot be forgiven, is a very serious problem um, on the left that somehow, and I mentioned this in my book, you know, if, if, you know, if you study, you know, uh, the Bible, the new Testament, you know, you have St. Paul who was Saul before he was St. Paul and he had a, on the road to Damascus, he has a conversion experience and he changes his life. He becomes a saint, a good guy. Um, but in this religion, in this woke religion, Paul is always Saul, right? He's always going to be judged by when he was Saul. Um, We don't. It's one of the only religions that I know of that doesn't have an idea of forgiveness and redemption. You can't be redeemed. Uh, You are forever the worst of what you did and said. And of course, no one can measure up to that. No one. but it's really a matter of was what you said or did captured on you know, in a recording or on social media, um, which now almost everything is. But um, it's not one that advances um, social justice or progress, because the whole idea is is to, is to win people over to your side. That's what activists do, right? Um, but here, it's not a question of winning people over. It's more about weeding people out. That's the goal. And, you know, someone told me this a great term recently, and I think it's a Freudian term. It's called the narcissism of small differences. And it's this idea that in a, in a, in a community or society where you kind of have different tribes, people find identity by uh, weeding people out of the tribe based on the smallest of differences, right? It's how you feel good about yourself in that type of situation. Um, and that's what you see with cancel culture. It's, it's, again, not trying to bring people under a bigger tent of the 99%. It's trying to weed out uh, uh, people in the tent so that I can feel morally more superior to those outside the tent. And that is not uh, a good religion, nor is it good politics, but that that's where we're at.
0: There's a lot of confessing going on in this movement. And I think it's related to what you just said, that let me put this in another way, perhaps, as long as you can have a guilty subject who must, like Azaria, confess and reconfess, you not only keep your narrative alive that social justice is happening because someone's confessing, you are what I call the the clown car. You know, when you go to the circus as a kid and you see all the acts and all of a sudden it goes dark, then out comes the clown car because in the background where there's no light, they are setting up for the tigers or the trapeze artists, but they don't want you to look at that. They want you to look at the clown car, which is under the light. And that's what I say is identity politics. It's getting us all worried about the show that's really keeping our eyes off of the mechanisms behind it in the dark that are manipulating the entire scenery that we're about to take part in. But we'll go back to the clown car again, after that show's over. So we're constantly looking at the most superficial part of a show, even if the clown car is fun and we like the clowns, we like their silly tricks, but the real machinery that's happening here is why are renters being told they can just pay back $20,000 of rent one day when they are unemployed, underemployed, and perhaps even not employable. One thing no one's talking about in this is really depressing, sorry to be Debbie Downer folks, but if you lost your job and you're over the age of 35, good luck getting another job. And I say this simply because where ageism takes place and it can happen in certain sectors like sports and dance, rare fields, but still that happens in the twenties. It happens traditionally in North America after 45 and 50 but this is a new world now and what's going to happen is there's going to be and we're already seeing it happen and i'm seeing it in europe as well where there will be a carte blanche given to companies using exploitative hiring measures i'm pretty shocked that no media major media is not talking about this and this is something to talk about because as you said earlier this will be forgotten All of us affected by this who've lost our living who are barely able to eat will be forgotten and so you think back to those of us who have traveled around the world and i remember stepping out of train stations in places like delhi mumbai and seeing those people right outside the stations who are living not even with a tent not even with a piece of plastic they just live on the sidewalks they defecate on the sidewalks and we walk by those people And we think that's sad, but we keep walking by and we go to our next appointment, we go to our next task. And that's what forgetting looks like. I really think that people need to start thinking (laughs) concretely about what historical materialism looks like, because it's not what we've been given here. I was shocked by Sanders and the way he was treated. The Russia baiting that went on, you mentioned this in one of your chapters, uh, chapter six, I believe, you talk about Tulsi Gabbard. Now, when I was posting on my Facebook wall about Gabbard, people were saying, oh, but she's not progressive. Well, Biden is. You know, the same people that were saying that voted for Biden. And I'm just like, what? WTAF, Dan. You know what I mean?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's really incredible. You have, especially in Tulsi, who, who's been incredibly vilified and effectively so, you know, um, the only um, principled anti-war candidate for president in a long time. And someone with a lot of street cred because she actually fought in Iraq. Right. And she's a woman of color. That's the other thing. You know, you would think that she'd be embraced by liberals, but she was vilified, um, because of her anti-war stance. Um, and again, liberals by and large don't care about war anymore either. In fact, it's funny democracy now, which Used to be kind of progressive. <laughs> they used to be. Uh, Amy Goodman used to announce it as you know the War and Peace report. That was that was their tagline for years. It's now the Quarantine Report. She doesn't care about war anymore either. In fact, supported the Libya invasion and all that. Um. I mean, you mentioned something that that that's important. You know that, that about this looking away at the homeless and whatnot. I think one of the problems you have with uh, modern or postmodern society, however you want to define it, is the ability to live in your own dream world. Right. And computers have allowed that to happen. I mean, most people live online. They socialize online. They do so-called activism online. They believe they're doing activism online um, their whole lived experience is, is, uh, it's artificial, it's virtual. And of course that is only accelerated with the pandemic, right? Because literally all of our meetings are virtual and, 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 and social interactions are, are virtual. And what that allows you to do is not see reality. You don't even have to step over the homeless guy cause you don't need to even go outside. And so it is it what it does is it it does encourage this magical thinking. where you don't have to test your beliefs against reality um, because you don't have to confront reality at all. You know, and that's a very philosophical issue. But, you know, these are things we need to start questioning about. um, Because it allows us so to be manipulated and again, not to care about things that are happening in and, and the media is, is worse than ever. I do. I mentioned this idea uh, in the book of intersectional imperialism, which is not a term I made up. I don't know who made it up. I think it's a good one. And it is this phenomenon that, you know, liberals now, again, have abandoned worrying about wars that we're fighting like in Yemen where millions of people are dying millions right people talk about you know Stalin and whatnot and you know and and and, and starvation that he uh, uh, happened under him what's happening in Yemen where rival all those things and yet there's no discussion of them um And again, the media doesn't talk about it. Again, NPR that I listen to never talks about it. Um, Because guess who started it? It was Obama. And that is not a convenient fact. Um, And yet Obama's portrayed as a saint, you know? So, I don't know, all sorts of mental gymnastics are uh, encouraged. And and we've gone over those throughout our discussion today. Um, And people are able to hold these contradictory ideas in their head at the same time. Um, Because again, reality is not forced upon
0: them. Remember the 1990s? (laughs) I miss that. I even miss Reaganism, and that's saying a lot. We can't sit and talk anymore with people because, as you said, so many people do their social life online now more than ever with the virus. But that's going to lessen up the virus the same people will remain attached to the computer because let's not kid ourselves, people use social media even before COVID-19 came into town. We are separated because of technology we choose to be. Is there a good question to be put to ourselves perhaps that we need to start limiting our use of social media as an ethical gesture towards humanity, to start to know our neighbours, to start to see people's faces and say hi on the street, Because I'm seeing that a lot of the problems that have arisen over the past decade are largely due to social isolation.
1: Yeah, no, um, you know, the other you know, you mentioned social isolation. Um, What else is going to happen because of the pandemic? You know, we're being told, you know, uh, told that, you know, the 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 global south is not receiving these vaccines. Right. The, The West, the The richer countries are hogging these vaccines, right? China is giving some, so is Russia. But by and large, the West is using them all for themselves. So a few things are going to happen as a result. One is, again, uh, there's a huge question whether this pandemic will pass at all, because you can't you you can't contain. The borders don't you know, the virus doesn't know The other thing that's going to happen to the extent it can be contained um, say outs, you know, if the US can contain it as well, you know, decently, what it means is you're not going to be able to freely travel to other countries, particularly poorer countries, right? And that's where a lot of people learn lessons about themselves, about life, and about, frankly, how most of the world lives. You know, most, I became a leftist because of my travels to Nicaragua in the 80s during the Cultural War, which I would not have understood had I not been able to travel there, right? And and so what you're going to have is not just social isolation between us, but it's going to be an isolation from other people and other people who are suffering because of the actions of our country. Um, And it's going to allow for even more cruelty in terms of of foreign policy of countries like the United States um, in particular. Uh, And I'm not saying that's being done by design, but that is going to be the result. And it's scary. I mean, uh, again, not to go down too dark of a path, but um, probably the best days that we've seen may be behind us. And we, you know, and that's a sad uh, reality. Um, But the only thing we can do to push against that is one to reach out to people in a real way, have interpersonal relationships and have honest discussions with people and not be afraid, you know, that what we say is going to, uh, you know, get us punished. Um, and, and by the way, I think, you know, you know, when you talk about that, what's going to happen, and it's probably already happening is people are going to be afraid to talk to people who are different than themselves, right? For fear of offending and embarrassing themselves.
0: And a new form of racism also emerges from this, frankly, uh, We've seen it with the kneeling and the apologizing because you're white and nonsense. And I worry, you see, people don't remember positive racism. And I referred to this in a podcast recently because, well, it's well-documented. It was the period of the noble savage. Uh, it didn't go very well for the noble savage. And people need to remember that racialism as Kwame Anthony Apia talks about in his writing or as Adolf Reed talks about in his, it's, it's still racism. So we can't create a better culture and society. If everything's going to come down to this hyper consciousness, kids in Brooklyn being taught that if they're white, they're automatically guilty of being racist. This is, this is racism. This is nuts.
1: And it's going to promote racism, again, because you're you're just going to 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 stay within your own clan for fear that you're going to uh, be outed as some kind of racist or or whatnot. As a friend of mine says, and I won't mention his name because he wouldn't want me to. But he agrees with me on most of these issues, but again, is afraid to say so. Um, he's a Jewish guy from the South. He was grew, grew up in Greensboro, North Carolina, one of the few Jewish families from there. Um, and he always says, if, if if you scratch race, you get racism, you know? <laughs> and, and and that is, is what's happening, you know, when all, everything's about race. Um, it, it, it creates racism. And that's an obvious point. But but that is, you know, is something that people were unwilling to confront.
0: In one of your final chapters, The Cancellation of Palestine, you talk about some of the effects of cancel culture that we've seen historically. And you talk about Norman Finkelstein, who I've been in touch with uh, when, when I was a professor in Canada. I was really touched by what happened to him, his career. He was destroyed by this. And if you recall from just after 9-11, Daniel Pipe started a watch list. And this is from the right, because, you know, I'm not absolving the right of their cancel culture either. And I was on it. I was teaching Edward Said's Orientalism, and I got landed on his list. I was at NYU at the time. It's insane that we can't learn from history. So skip to, I start doing research in the West Bank, this was the summer of 2003. And I remember the first thought that popped into my head after I had gone through a series of roadblocks in order to get to my destination, a trip that for Israelis would have taken and does take 15 minutes, took hours for me. I traveled as if a Palestinian. And the first thing I thought, and I felt this for weeks and weeks and weeks was, I've been lied to by my own media. They don't tell us the truth in North America about what happens in Israel and the West Bank at all. And the media capitulation to wokery, even then, it doesn't go far enough because that machsam, after another machsam and all these roadblocks, I made a film of it finally. It's amazing how many people have no idea what's happening. So it's not just that, The right's getting canceled, as I remind people on the left who say, but that's not her pronoun. I'm like, I have eyeballs, it's a man in a dress. Sorry if you don't like that, but we really need to start to negotiate the larger issues here. Why are young women and a lot of bro dudes, old school misogyny types, getting behind harassing women because we recognize that a man has pink hair or a man is in a dress and he looks fetching in that dress? We are entering in an era of compelled speech and the blasphemy laws that are unofficially being erected around this are shocking. People are losing jobs. I interview people all the time who, are, who have lost their livelihoods with children now unemployed. So your, your last book talks about the cancellation of Palestine as if this parable for what else can happen here, not only about Palestine itself
1: yeah uh, yeah i'd love to speak to that first of all you might have seen that angela davis was just canceled right Deplatformed from a speech she was going to give because of her views on palestine um i mentioned desmond tutu of course who won a nobel peace prize um who was deplatformed because of his view on palestinians um and again it's not just the right that's doing this um look at jeremy corbyn Right. Britain's only chance for, you know, real socialist policies, um, probably for many years to come, whose campaign was destroyed largely by claims he was an anti-Semite again because he's pro-Palestinian. And a lot of those claims didn't come from the right. They came from within the Labor Party. And NPR repeated those claims. Scott Simon on NPR, remember specifically doing. Um, and probably there is no greater form of censorship than that being leveled against people who defend Palestine. And again, I think that when you look to see, you know, uh, censorship being aggressively used against people, usually it's because what they're trying to protect cannot be defended. And what Israel is doing to Palestine, particularly to Gaza, but also the West Bank is inhumane. It's indecent. It is criminal. And therefore, you can't talk about it because if that is acknowledged, the whole uh, system will collapse. And so yeah. So the most aggressive forms of censorship are being leveled against people like Norman Finkelstein, who himself is Jewish, who himself lost family in the Holocaust. And yet because he defends Palestine and is critical of Israel, he's been labeled a Holocaust denier. Sometimes It's incredible. Um, but but it is this slippery slope. It is why. Uh, People in the day like the ACLU you mentioned defended free speech rights, even of people with reprehensible views, because if you don't do that, if you don't defend that, you know, abstract good, it's they're going to come for you and they're going to stop you from speaking and people who you like from speaking. And that's what we're seeing happen. And again, the liberal uh elite in this country has given up defending free speech and as you say the aclu appears to have given up defending free speech in fact i saw a recent interview with ira glazer who used to be the president of the aclu and he he laments these things because he sees that 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 uh that is happening the good of free speech is 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 being abandoned and it's gonna come down harder on the left than anyone.
0: Let's go.